possible because of everything that's been done before, you know, all the different ways people have been generous, like you said. So it is, we can, it, I think it's really appropriate to uh, bask in the wholesomeness of who we are, what we're doing, and really let it be a cause for strength and a good feeling in the heart. That's really the reason to operate this way, is it uh, creates safety, it protects the community, protects us, protects our practice, supports our practice. So I want to talk a little bit more tonight about skillful means, and like I mentioned, we'll have time for question and answers tomorrow morning um, about the talks, but anything that seems relevant. And, uh, you know, the whole point of skillful means, you know, that term, skillful means, which was the Buddha used, is really to um, help us not get attached to the teachings. Some of you know that famous teaching about the Dhamma and the raft, and the teachings are meant to get you across the flood, you know, the flood of our craving and clinging and grasping. And once we're across, we don't continue to hold on to the raft, we put it down. So all of the teachings, all the instructions are meant to be used, not meant to put on an altar and bow down in front of, although it's, it's totally appropriate to feel grateful for the teachings and respectful of the teachings. But they're really meant to be used, to be applied directly in our lives at the right time, in the right way, and then to be put aside until they're needed again. And when they're no longer needed, maybe someday for all of us, then we just put it down. We don't need to sort of keep practicing. And even in our own, even where we all are as you know, relative beginners, even now there are times when a certain practice is really useful, but then the mind gets more subtle, and we don't need the so-called big guns, and we need to put that down, that energy that was very useful when the mind was dealing, let's say, with a lot of negative emotions, now that those emotions aren't present in the mind, we put down those strategies. We don't keep working in the way we were working because it's, it's inappropriate. Those were tools to be used when the mind was more gross. We need a different kind of practice when the mind is more subtle. And it's really important to understand that so we're not getting stuck in our particular likes and dislikes around practice, but are completely pragmatic, you know. What we take up, what we, you know, how we practice is completely determined by what actually works now, what brings good results, leads the heart toward release, not toward suffering, not toward stress or grasping. So we're using these skillful means to illuminate in all the different ways that there's inertia, there's weight in the mind, fixedness, heaviness, attachment in the mind. We need a set of tools that helps illuminate all the different ways our mind can get tight, can get caught, can get identified, <coughs> can be attached. So some of them that I've mentioned the last few days, so we've talked about, and I'll talk about them in pairs because that helps to really loosen us up when we see that this and this can be skillful at different times. So one pair of, not necessarily opposites, but things that 
uh, we wouldn't necessarily uh, normally think of as both skillful. So there's urgency, and related to that urgency is a a wholesome concern, like we're concerned. I think it's even appropriate to say a wholesome fear, like fear of doing something unskillful, um, and a willingness to restrain or refrain our impulses because we don't trust them or we think our particular habit will lead us into suffering, so we want to cut it off or we want to abandon it or we want to refrain from taking it up. And then at the other maybe at the other end of the spectrum, you know, the skillful means of acceptance and forgiveness, sense of humor, like uh, part of being able to forgive is to understand how, how easy it is for human beings to be swept away by various negative patterns. And patience, kindness, you know, whenever wisdom is outmaneuvered or outgunned by our negative patterns, you know, then we can, oh, we always have forgiveness and a sense of humor and a sense of patience to fall back on, compassion. Oh, well, this is how it is to be overwhelmed, dragged away by negativity. I really see that as a powerful fruit of my years of practice. I could even... Just a few minutes ago, I was doing some walking practice outside before the talk, and I just noticed my mind going to, you know, thinking that I wouldn't want to share with anybody. And, uh, but it's like, but it's not a problem, because I know how to be skillful. I know how to relate skillfully to that kind of thinking. I know how to immediately not be identified with it, not... Uh, to be forgiving, to be patient with it, not to be afraid of it. And you start to see how, you know, there are some times when, or maybe when our wisdom isn't that strong, that it's more appropriate to cut it off. If we leave a crack, the door opened a crack, and that comes in, we'll be swept away. And there won't be any humor there, or any forgiveness, or any understanding except that deluded notion, you know, we'll be swept away, caught up with it. So maybe in that case it is really appropriate to stand guard, to pull out the sword whenever it gets close. Not going there, nope. And other times we can let it come knowing that it's just a thought, knowing that it's not self. And then we let it pass away without having to be the guy with the sword, protecting ourselves. But when we need to protect ourselves, we're not afraid to be the guy, the person with the sword. But we don't carry the sword around when we don't believe it's dangerous. We only do that when we have some sense that something's dangerous. Then related, you know, we have the skillful means of commitment or stick to itness. Related to this would be uh, practices where we're directing our attention in different ways taking refuge with a particular thought or a particular meditation object, really moving towards protected spaces, hanging out at common ground, hanging out with your Dharma friends, trying to be around wise people when you can, <clears throat> Ref- uh, remembering the precepts, being religious about the precepts, you know. Some people boohoo, people who... Uh, 
you know, repeat the precepts around non-harming, non-stealing, not engaging in sexual misconduct or false speech, gossip or harsh speech, not intoxicating the mind with recreational drugs. You know, they boohoo them like, oh, that's such a primitive thing to get tight about. You know, you're just tight about those things. How can that be helpful? But for some people, it's quite helpful to be quite attached. I mean, let's just use that provocative word, attached to the precepts, holding fast to the precepts, sticking, committed to the precepts. You know, and at the other end of that spectrum, we can imagine how skillful it is to have a you know, a real sense of ambiguity, really opening to life, ambiguous life, where things are uncertain. And trusting, you know, trusting that uncertainty and trusting that things are unfolding in ways we can't quite grasp or comprehend completely. And, um, you know, being open and, uh, and appreciating the limits of certainty, you know, anything where we might want to feel certain or think we're certain, like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think it was, said, you know, it, it can be quite useful to tack on to the end of every thought, maybe not so. Just to uh, stay connected with this ambiguous, ambiguous nature of things and the uncertain nature of things. And you see how that seems to contradict the importance, uh, the skillful means of commitment and sticking to and, and holding on to what we see as skillful. And over at this end, you know, you'd have things like undirected meditation practice, where you're just practicing, uh, emphasizing an openness of mind and heart and seeing whatever arises in that open and clear and trusting space and just seeing it as a movement of nature. And even if it's sort of a bad habit that's arising in the space of the mind, it's just a bad habit being known. It's just that thought, that tendency being known. And you can imagine how both could fall short, like a stick to in the wrong way at the wrong time, you know, could be an invitation to hell. In the same way that sort of cultivating that trusting, don't know, ambiguous point of view could be really problematic at other times. Because sometimes we really do know. You know, we really do know that's unskillful. It isn't ambiguous at all. But maybe because we want to do it, you know, on some <laughs> primal level, we say, well, who knows? You know, who knows? Maybe cheating isn't really unskillful. Who knows? That's just, you know, that's a fixed view. And then tonight, you know, I'll go into a little bit more, like I mentioned, you know, on one hand we have letting go, releasing, relinquishing. Even uh, in Theravada Buddhism, especially you hear from the suttas, you know, there's a place of even disgust, like just being disgusted with the tendencies of the mind, the meanness of the mind, the superficiality of the mind, and equanimity. And on the other side of that spectrum, you know, a letting in, a willingness to connect, a willingness to be interested, to show up, and to be sensitive, like to really let life or whatever is arising in the moment, to really let it have its effect on the mind. Like demonstrating a fearlessness, not being afraid of 
whatever's arising, letting it come right on through, undefended. Right? And again, that sounds almost like a contradiction. So, not anymore, just six, you know, to play with. So we have, you know, and you can use other uh, sort of words to hold each of these six, but urgency, acceptance, commitment, don't know mind, letting go, letting in. And you can just see that, you know, we will cycle through all six and probably many more. You know, these are just six that came to my mind um, this weekend. And you can see that, uh, you know, they really depend on each other. And before we end tonight, I'll, I'll read a few examples where many of these skillful means are working together so that we don't think of it just as one or the other. And uh, as I mentioned, Joseph Goldstein said, eventually it's really seamless. We want to train in all six ways and probably more so that we have uh, some fluency and some familiarity with these different ways of being skillful. We can call on them. We know how to practice in that way or how to relate in that way. And then we're, we feel more brave going into the world. You know, and, and what we mean by going into the world is having sense experience, or as we say in Buddhist circles, sense contact. Because that's what's happening all the time. We're sensitive through our eyes and ears and nose and tongue and through our skin and touch. And we're sensitive to the thoughts and emotions that are cognized in the mind. So we're sensitive in these six ways. We're constantly having sense contact. And then that's a confusing thing for human beings. Do we indulge in the sense contacts we're having? Do we reject them as being dangerous? Ooh, you know, that that doll or whatever it was for lunch, that was a little too good, you know. Better be careful. Or so do we reject sense experience because we're afraid we're going to get in trouble? Or do we try to make our happiness, build our happiness out of sense contact? Or, you know, you can probably guess from the teachings of the Buddha, you know, he's suggesting that we practice understanding. We want to understand sense contact. And that's really where all the Skillful means that's what they're about. You know, we're having sense contact, and that sense contact reveals the only problem there is for humans, which is different ways that our mind gets stuck. Different ways our mind experiences friction, heaviness, resistance, grasping. And that's the place where we practice. You know, there's really no other place to practice except with how the mind gets stuck because of sense contact. This is from Stephen Levine. When we can be with whatever is happening in the moment, our sense of completeness will be present. Our feeling of wholeness, of fulfillment will be present as we open to whatever is happening in the moment. We don't have to do anything about it. Doing is usually the desire for something to be otherwise. When we can surrender into the moment without any attachment anywhere, so that anything that arises is seen with a soft, non-judging mind, 
we experience our completeness. We can be with our loneliness, our fear, even our self-consciousness in a very complete way. So you see this, you hear this as a particular kind of skillful means. And then I have another example, and this is uh, from a, a wonderful short article that Ajahn Pasino wrote about mindfulness of the breath. And uh, in the Forest Sangha newsletter from a long time ago, he says, in meditation practice, we find that there's a certain paradox. We want to simplify the mind and to make it peaceful, but it takes a lot of work just to make the mind simple. To allow the mind to become peaceful, we have to work at it. And for this, we need to have some sort of a structure. I have found the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness of breathing and the Anapanasati Sutta a very effective and complete way of training the mind. When we first look at it, we might think, wow, that's really complicated. Sixteen stages of mindfulness of breathing? That's too much. I just want to watch my breath. But when we really learn how to use the steps of the training that the Buddha laid down, we can see how complete and effective it is for training the mind. It's a tool for changing the whole process of the mind and the way we relate to the mind. And then at the end he says, in one sense we have to push the mind a bit. (coughs) We have to overcome certain inertia in the mind that doesn't want to, to work so much. It just wants to get as much to get as much as possible with doing as little as possible. That's the normal human condition. He goes on to talk about a cartoon he read a long time ago where two uh, drunkards are sitting with a half-empty bottle between them. And one says to the other, let's, let's face it, Sid, not having been born great, not having achieved greatness, one can only assume that we'll have it thrust upon us. <laughs> I sometimes think that meditation is like that. But we can't just wait for these peaceful states to sort of drop on us, for enlightenment to just sort of pop up from nowhere. There's a certain amount of work that's involved. It takes care, being circumspect with what we are doing, being patient with it, being patient with ourselves. Now that's hard enough work. So having these parameters, having a structure to work with is very helpful. So here you have, on the one hand, you have Stephen Levine, you know, saying that if we just open completely, that's enough. And and I put up the 16 steps of the mindfulness of breathing discourse of the Buddhas, and you know, it it is complicated. Just trying to figure out what he means in those discourses can be take a lot of discussion and direct practice before it becomes clear to us. So we have these, you know, these different um, parameters or different ways of practicing, and we have this predicament that we all share, which is we're experiencing sense contact, and we have a lot of habits around wanting to indulge in sense contact, and a lot of habits of being frightened by sense contact, wanting to eliminate it. Sometimes people mistake Buddhism for this. Uh, this desire to want to get away from sense contact, like I'll be a Buddhist and I'll somehow rise above this world of sense contact and uh, be immune from it, you know, like that. See no evil, hear no evil. What's the other one? Speak Speak no evil. You know, somehow uh, retreating from the world. And because 
retreat and renunciation is a big part of the path and the whole archetype of monasticism is such an important part of the path, it can seem that the way to freedom is not to have sense contact or to minimize sense contact, that that's the ticket. And of course, it would mean that death would be very convenient then, you know, because at least we wouldn't have the five physical senses and just have the mind to deal with. So it's clearly not the way, because that desire is just, in some ways, is just as toxic as wanting to indulge, thinking that sense experience is going to save the day, make us happy. For the Sunday and Wednesday practice groups, I'm reading Ajahn Chah's book, using it for some of my talks, Food for the Heart. And we're on chapter five this week, coming week. And uh, it just so happens that Ajahn Chah's chapter, you know, it's just a talk he gave. I think this talk he gave to the monks. Some of the talks were talks given to lay people in the book, and this one is one of the talks given to the monks and nuns. And uh, it just happens to be on sense context. So I want to read a little bit from Ajahn Chah. So he's just been talking about our tendency to indulge in sense contact and to run from it. And he says, you see, this is choosing according to our likes. Usually, whatever we don't like, we don't want to see or know about. But the Buddha wanted us to experience these things. Look at this world and know it clearly. If we don't know the truth of the world clearly, then we can't go anywhere. Living in the world, we must understand the world. The noble ones of the past, including the Buddha, all lived with these things. They lived in this world, among deluded people, and attained truth right here, nowhere else. But they had wisdom. They restrained their senses. And then a little later he says, Escaping from suffering means knowing the way out of suffering. It doesn't mean running away from wherever suffering arises. By doing that, you just carry your suffering with you. If you want to understand suffering, you must look into the situation at hand. The teachings say that wherever a problem arises, it must be settled right there. Where suffering lies is right where non-suffering will arise. It ceases at the place where it arises. You should settle the issue right there. One who runs away from suffering out of fear is the most foolish person of all. They will simply increase their stupidity endlessly. But this is, a, I think, a really important point in our practice. And again, it clarifies some of our practice, practice mechanisms, like going on retreat. Like we're not going on retreat to get away from our problems. We're going on retreat to create a situation where we have support to look at the problems that arise, to look at the aversion that arises, to look at the dullness that arises, the restlessness that arises, and to look at all the positive states that arise too, for that matter. It's not about avoiding life. We don't come on retreat to avoid life. And if I'm assuming we've all figured that out by now. It's like, <laughs> even though we're not talking and even though the schedule is pretty simple, you know, the degree of happiness and sorrow on retreat it's pretty rich, you know, certainly as rich as being out in the world because we're not so distracted by our experiences of sorrow and happiness on retreat. They stand out in living color, where if we're busy in our world, 
have all our distractions, we can, in a sense, numb out and be unaware. It's a lot easier to be unaware of our movement through sorrow and happiness. Less easy to do that here. A little bit more. So Ajahn Chah gives the example of, uh, you know, somebody, he gives several examples that I think are really good about, um, yeah, people avoiding doing their work right here. We're... Suffering arises is where it ceases. So to think that when suffering arises, we should go somewhere else is missing the point. Now, sometimes when suffering arises, we just don't have the skill to face it right then and there. But then at least we should have enough mindfulness to know that this suffering can only cease right here, but I can't work with it. You know, I don't have the confidence. I don't have the balance. So I'm I'm out of here. I'm going to redirect my attention or I'm going to get up and leave the room. or, And that can be skillful, but at least we've acknowledged that we're not solving our problem. We're just putting it off for another day. That lesson that could have been learned here, but it's not because we're not, we don't have enough momentum in our practice, mind's not balanced enough, we'll have to learn that lesson somewhere else. So whenever we have the balance, have the confidence, we should take that opportunity to learn that lesson right there. And like I said, he gives examples, you know, just from, he's talking to a monastic crowd, and he's sort of belittling uh, some of the things he sees and, and giving his own life as an, a, a counterexample, you know, this sense of sticking to things. And first he makes fun of himself for having, you know, early on as a monk, uh, always looking for a better teacher, you know, or a better monastery where the monks kind of are more serious and wandering around but never being satisfied for a while with what he found. And he also gives the example of, you know, being really irritated by the sounds from the village and getting beeswax and stuffing it in his ear, you know, and then realizing, of course, that it wasn't the sound that was irritating his mind, it was his own mind. (laughs) And he still had humming when he put the wax in his ear, so there's still sounds. And his mind was still, you know, making all the noise and complaining in, in the ways that our mind does. Another time, he didn't give in this chapter, but another time uh, Ajahn Chah spoke about, uh, for one of the three months uh, rain retreats, rains retreats, he decided not to look at women for that entire three months. And it was when he was young and being celibate as a monk, you know, and still very attracted to women and just dealing with sexual energy and... Uh, or not dealing with it effectively. Anyway, so he decided not to look at women for three months, and he realized how good his meditation got, and he started to get a little um, confident, you know, like, oh yeah, I got this thing licked. And he said, okay, I'm going to, one day he said, I'm going to go look at a woman. And he said it was like being struck by lightning. (laughs) How much it brought up, because that sort of practice, you know, can be very repressive. It's like the pressure is building, But through a force of will, you know, attachment, like attachment to the monk who doesn't look at women, the monk who's free of sexual desire or free of needing to indulge sexual desires, you know, we have that strong idea, so we repress what's real, what's natural, lawful. And then when it does come out, you know, it comes out with vengeance, with a real force. He also makes... uh, front of a monk, you know, he was walking through the monastery and he sees uh, a little kuti where one of the monks was living where the roof had been blown off. And uh, 
he asked the monk about this, and evidently this monk is o- had always, right from the beginning of his ordination, has, had been really into not clinging, you know, really took that up, that teaching up. And so he, he told Ajahn Chah, well, the roof being blown off by the storm, that was a natural event. I just noted it, you know, as a natural event. And, uh, you know, when it, when it rains, I just move over to the part of the hut that's still blocked, you know, and when I want to be in the sun, I just move over to the other side. And Ajahn Chah really scolded him, like uh, just uh, that simplistic idea of not clinging. He said, one of the things he said to him is, well, why not not cling to the rain, you know, when it's falling? Why, why, do you, why do you decide to respond to that and move to the other side of the hut but you don't bother to fix the roof? And just all these different ways that we justify laziness uh, as a kind of letting go, you know, a skillful letting go. We don't do what needs to be done. I've, I've definitely seen that in my own practice. Then uh, this, now I'll just read a little bit more. And he gives this example like when you have a splinter in your foot, you know, a little splinter that's not so obvious, you really stay attuned to it. You don't just ignore it. And he says, now our effort in the practice must be like this. Wherever it hurts, whenever there's friction, we must investigate. Confront the problem head on. Take that thorn out of your foot. Just pull it out. Wherever your mind gets stuck, you must take note. As you look into it, you'll know it, see it and experience it as it is. But our practice must be unwavering and persistent. They call it Virya Rambha, putting forth constant effort. Whenever an unpleasant feeling arises in your foot, for example, you must remind yourself to get that thorn out. You don't give up your resolve. Likewise, when suffering arises in our hearts, we must have the unwavering resolve to uproot, to try to uproot the defilements, to give them up. This resolve is constantly there, unremitting. Eventually, the defilements will fall into our hands where, they, where we can finish them off. So it's a real martial or militaristic view of the defilements. And this is um, another thing Ajahn Mahabua, this other monk, the one who was scolding the, the monk about his cup too close to the edge, at another time, he said something like, uh, you don't need to be afraid of um, attacking defilements. I mean, it's not, it's just a version, I mean, there's a place for that sword, that sort of uh, doing battle. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's an image you like or that you use, but there is a fierceness in practice. In the Tibetan tradition, you know, they, they make a big deal out of the whole warrior uh, approach, like finding that warrior energy to be able to access it. And we don't want to feel like that's inherently bad, being a warrior. certainly can be bad. There's a shadow to any of these skillful means. So we have this set of tools, we have this working ground, 
our working ground again is sense contact. You know, that's why the Buddha makes such a big deal about the present moment. It's always about the contact that's arising right now, the experience that's arising right now. And then what are we going to bring to that moment? So it's not a passive... So even that strategy, that skillful means of being open, let's say, or just letting things be, that's not a passive move. That's a wholehearted kind of action. We're, we're taking that up. You know, I'm going to be wholehearted. It has elements, and you know, this is sort of where I'm going, is to see the different threads of these skillful means in any way that we're handling any sense contact, any experience. You'll see the threads of all skillful means there. I think the Buddha even says something like this. I'm not sure where it is in the discourses. But something about, you know, whenever we show up, whenever we're fully mindful, all of mindfulness's good friends gather around. You know, all the other wholesome qualities of mind gather there. Ardency, for example, you know, the kind of uh, persistence and uh, um, not backing down. And uh, and the, the quality of uh, investigation, the quality of stillness, steadiness, tranquility. And all these friends gather around whenever we're mindful. They hang out in a gang, <laughs> one of the good gangs. <laughs> so we have this working ground, you know, the place that we return to, the place of this moment sense contact, what's being known in this moment. We have our tools, and then the dynamic is just the, this reflection on the Four Noble Truths, or just more simply, clinging and non-clinging, suffering and non-suffering, but putting it in terms of the activity we're looking at. We're looking, we're interested in the experience of clinging or grasping, and the ending of grasping, the cessation of grasping or non-grasping. No grasping in the mind, no clinging in the mind, no attachment in the mind. So... That's sort of, um, as we open to the moment of contact, that's what we're interested in. And that's a natural thing for a human being, a suffering being, to be interested in. Because a suffering being who has done their homework understands it always involves clinging. Happiness always involves true happiness. True peace always involves non-clinging. So why wouldn't we immediately go to that in any experience of sense contact, sense experience. And the amazing thing is that then it means the actual sense experience is relatively unimportant. What's important is the presence of clinging or the absence of clinging. That's actually what's important. It doesn't matter whether we're having a nice sunny day or a cloudy cold day or whether we have indigestion or the body feels great or people really like us or... People seem to be having a hard time with us. I remember, uh, I think it might have been at Rev Anderson's ordination. He's a wonderful teacher. Maybe today I'll read some of something from one of his books. Who used to be the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. And he's also a real character. And uh, probably hard to be around at times, at least. Um, And anyway, evidently, at his ordination, when Suzuki Roshi, this wonderful Zen teacher, ordained him, uh, he said something to him, and I'll have to paraphrase, something like, um, Reb must be Reb. 
People are going to ha- have a hard time with Reb, <laughs> but Reb must be Reb. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, that's sometimes how it is. Like, uh, in these moments of sense contact, you know, what's going to show up there, it's not necessarily what we like, but it's what we have to work with. You know, and that, as Ajahn Chah was saying in this chapter, you know, it doesn't make sense to think that the strategy for happiness is getting someplace perfect. That's actually the cause for suffering, is thinking that happiness lies somewhere else rather than now. And then we keep missing the work that can be done in search of something that can never be found, you know, the so-called happy place, utopia. Here's some discourses from the Buddha on this, and from the Sutta Nipata. And uh, each of these three short discourses, one of the Brahmin students are questioning the Buddha. So one says, I'll skip some of the um, praise that they heap on the Buddha. Um, but the one person says, uh, there are a lot of people stuck midstream in the terror of and fear and the rush of the river of being, right? They're having a difficult time in their lives, stuck right in the middle of their difficult time. For their sake, sir, tell me where to find an island. <clears throat> tell, me where, tell me where there is solid ground beyond the reach of all this pain. And the Buddha says, there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession, a place of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana, which means something that's like a fire that's cooled. There are people who, in mindfulness, have realized this and are completely cooled here and now. They do not become slaves working for Mara, for death. They cannot fall into its power. And then another instance, um, somebody asks the Buddha, what is the state of peace? Please explain it to me as it really is. And the Buddha replies, lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world, right, the world of attachment, clinging, Letting go of the world is peacefulness. There is nothing that you need to hold on to. There is nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past. Have nothing for your future. If you do not, do not cling to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. There is a greed that fixes on the individual body-mind. When that greed has completely gone, then, Brahman, there will be no more inner poison drives, without which you are immune from death. And then another student asks the Buddha, For all the different people here who have come from different places to listen to your words, tell us about the way that you have found and known. And the Buddha replied, There is, in taking things, a thirst, a clinging, a grasping. You must lose it. You must lose it altogether, above, below, around, and within. It makes no difference what it is you are grasping at. When a person grasps, Mara stands beside him or her. Therefore, practitioners, realizing this, should not grasp at anything. Being mindful, one should see the beings 
see the beings that are creatures of attachment as tied to the power of death. So, clearly, it's about non-attachment, non-clinging. And as I mentioned earlier, you can think about all of these skillful means. They could be causes for clinging. We could get attached to uh, letting go. We can get attached to love, like being kind to everything. We can be attached to urgency and, you know, that vigilance. We can be attached to our mindfulness of breathing. We can be attached to open attention practice. We can get attached to even to emptiness, the idea of emptiness. So there's really nothing the mind can't get attached to. Even, you know, the experience of insight, it's easy to get attached. You can have an authentic experience of emptiness, of the absence of a, a permanent self. You know, you, you realize that and the mind can get attached to it. it. The ego takes it up as an ornament. You know, this is the mind that realized that. How about that? And, of course, then there's suffering, there's stress. In that article that Ajahn Chah wrote, he talks about, you know, all the different ways, all the different things we get born into. It's really nice, you know, this, the Buddha often used uh, being free from death, being free from birth and death as um, um, synonym for awakening, for freedom, Nibbana. And it, it can be a little surprising, but, you know, when we think about to be born, that activity of being born, like how many things have we gotten born into today? Where we took birth with this particular attitude, this particular drama, this particular problem, this particular hope. You know, like many births in one day. And of course, every time we've been born into something today, it had to die in order for the next birth to happen. So over and over again, we've been born into something. You had a little fantasy, or I had a little fantasy about a place on the South Shore, you know, which generally comes up a couple times a day, or just a place, you know, where I'm all alone, and no one's going to bother me, and it's really pleasant. You know, those kind of fantasies. I'm assuming that's pretty common. You know, each each of us with our own version of that. And uh, and then, you know, we get born into that idea. And we we live there for a while, and then... Eventually, it starts feeling stale and tight because it's not the way it is. It's a construction of the mind. It has a certain falseness to it as a construction of the mind. So instead of just letting it cease and die, we create something else to be reborn into. And this is what characterizes a normal person's life, is one being born into one thing after another. So forget about one physical life followed by rebirth in another body, in another place. Even within one day, even within one hour, there are so many births and deaths. And all of these births and deaths are driven by the habit of grasping, clinging. It's grasping that provides a sense of hope, you know, like, oh, this, the promise that's never kept, this is going to take care of me. And it's also the grasping 
that makes us uh, dissatisfied with what we've grasped because it, it's tight. And so we let it go. We're willing to die. And then, but we're not content with that death. So practice is really about stepping out of the whole game of birth and death. That's why that metaphor is used so much in Theravada Buddhism. You know, going beyond birth and death, the deathless. The deathless is a very common synonym for awakening. You know, and it's so confusing to Westerners to hear someone say, practice well and you'll realize the deathless. And they go, what? (laughs) You know, what does that mean? And do I want that? But it's really talking about being free from the endlessness of birth and death, of the mind always seeking something to be born into, always finding itself dissatisfied, always seeking something else to be reborn into, and finding the alternative to that. This is Ajahn Sumedho talking about letting go from a wonderful booklet on the Four Noble Truths that you can download. Really one of the best you know, collection of teachings, probably about 50 pages long. And the, this is the chapter on the second noble truth, which is the cause for suffering, which is grasping. So he's talking about letting go in light of grasping. He says, when you really see the origin of suffering, you realize the problem is the grasping of desire, not the desire itself. Right? So this is useful to see desire as a natural thing, And then with ignorance, the mind assumes it should grasp the desire, take it personally. With wrong view, we think desire should be grasped. It's not desire itself. So he goes on, he says, grasping means being deluded by it, thinking it's really me and mine. These desires are me, and there is something wrong with me for having them, or I don't like the way I am now, I have to become something else, or... I have to get rid of something before I can become what I want to be. All this is desire. So you listen to it with bare attention, not saying it's good or bad, but merely recognizing it for what it is. See, this is the alternative to being reborn, is simply being mindful of it as it is. He goes on and says, If we contemplate desires and listen to them, we are actually no longer attaching to them. We are just allowing them to be the way they are. Then we come to the realization that the origin of suffering, desire, can be laid aside and let go of. How do you let go of things? This means you leave them as they are. It does not mean you annihilate them or throw them away. It's more like setting down and letting them be. Through the practice of letting go, we realize that there is an origin of suffering, which is the attachment to desire. And we realize that we should let go of these three kinds of desire. And then we realize that we have let go of these desires. There is no longer any attachment to them. And these are the three insights the Buddha mentioned in his first Dharma talk. So when he was talking about the cause of suffering, he said, you know, it's, it's this grasping, this clinging, and that this should be recognized, right? How did, he, how did Ajahn Sumedho say it? We should let go. So the first realization is, you know, there's a cause for suffering. And then the second insight is, this cause should be let go of. And the third insight is, this cause, this attachment, this clinging has been let go of. But again, it's not that you're doing the letting go. It's that letting go happens. 
What is the cause for letting go happening? You recognize that there is a cause. So first you have to be, as uh, I mean, as uh, Reb Anderson says, you have to be in the downtown of suffering. You have to be willing to show up. Like Ajahn Chah says, instead of running from sense contact, we work with sense contact that's arising. And there it is. And then it's right there. That's the only place we can realize, have insight that, oh, the cause is this clinging that's arising right now with this sense contact. And then when we see that clinging, there's an insight. Oh, this should be let go of. And then there's an insight. This has been let go of. So there's three insights that first depend on getting close to suffering, opening to suffering, not being afraid of sense contact. One is, we see there is a cause for the tightness in the heart, for the weight. It should be let go of. It has been let go of. All three of these are a natural arising. They just happen naturally when we get close to suffering. If you wonder why you haven't released grasping, there could only be one cause. You haven't got close to suffering. You still think it's better to run from suffering or to deny suffering, stay distracted from it. But when any human being really shows up and is clear and balanced with the, their very real sorrow or discomfort or negativity, they will have that first insight. There is a cause for this discomfort, for this tightness of, in the mind. There's a cause. It's right here. This cause should be abandoned. This cause has been abandoned. So we're basically observing the natural releasing that happens triggered by the seeing, by seeing dukkha first, seeing the, the, the stress or suffering first, seeing the cause, seeing the grasping, seeing it as it actually is, and then seeing that it's released, you know, that it, or seeing that it should be released. So there's that actual impulse in the mind, this should be let go of. It's actually an insult like, uh, insight. <laughs> it's like recognizing it's extra. It's totally unnecessary to be grasping. It's like I mentioned during my walking practice uh, just before the talk. You know, I still have little, not so loud, but little impulses like, oh, I shouldn't be thinking that way. You know, when, I'm, you know, when some bad thoughts are going on in my mind. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking that way. But it's like that grasping, like grasping, wanting to get rid of what's negative, thinking I should be getting rid of what's negative, I should be squashing it. You know, I can see that uh, that that's suffering. You know, I can see that any tension, that that's suffering. And the cause is the attachment. Recognizing that that's an unwholesome thought isn't a problem, that's useful. But at getting attached, like identified, I'm being bad, that's the attachment, that's the grasping. And that can be seen. Oh, there's grasping, that's the cause. I don't need to own that identification to the thought. I don't need to take the thought personally. And then all of a sudden it's not there. I'm not taking the thought personally anymore. And all that happens, boom, 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 like in an instant. But when we're really, when the mind's really quiet, we really see that that's enough just to recognize that there is the tendency to grasp, that it should be let go of, that it's unnecessary, and that it's not there anymore. 
it's been put down. And then we know we have a little moment of cessation, the third noble truth. Oh, this is what it feels like to be free. In this moment, the mind is free of that grasping that was there a moment ago. It has completely ceased in the mind, that grasping, through the non-identification, through not being confused by it. It wasn't that you put it down. Ajahn Sumedho says, So the way is always working with the movements of daily life. When you feel depressed and negative, just the moment that you refuse to indulge in that feeling is an enlightenment experience. When you see that, you need not sink into the sea of depression and despair and wallow in it. You can actually stop by learning not to give things a second thought. You will have to find this out through practice so that you will know for yourself how to let go of the origin of suffering. Can you let go of desire by wanting to let go of it? What is it that is really letting go in a given moment? You have to contemplate the experience of letting go and really examine and investigate it until the insight comes. Keep with it until that insight comes. Ah, letting go. Yes, now I understand. Desire is being let go of. This does not mean that you are going to let go of desire forever, but at that one moment you actually have let go and you have done it in full conscious awareness. There is an insight then. This is what we call insight knowledge. So this is really where we go with our practice. We have our skillful means. We have each moment of sense contact. We understand the lay of the land. There is craving, there is clinging, and there is the end of clinging. And then we're just bringing, it's like our tool ultimately, and all these skillful means are supporting this illumination of clinging and non-clinging. All of the skillful means are all about illuminating the experience of clinging and non-clinging. And the more we see it, the more that, that work of releasing clinging becomes just a movement of nature. We, we actually start to trust our life that the non-clinging will just happen. It isn't even something that we have to do or think we're doing or I'm on a path of non-clinging. Let's take a moment and let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together. Just noticing the moment of sense experience. And the wholesome, skillful qualities present. Noticing the experience of non-clinging as it actually is and 
noticing the experience of clinging if it's here as it is. We'll continue with our practice. Thanks everyone for listening. So people have uh, one-on-one interviews now. <clears throat> we'll come back together at nine for the chanting and last sit of the evening.